you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. David. Yes. We're men. Yes. We're gay. Yes. We're cis. Yep. We're white. Okay. And? Well, we just can't <laughs> talk about everything. Sure, we may know the fundamentals and the numbers about things, but we don't have all the lived experience. Absolutely right. And that's why we're hosting an amazing panel of queer women on Queer Money episode 315 to talk about unique lesbian money issues. Today, we're answering a few questions we've gotten over the years from our queer women listeners. So let's hear from a few queer women about their experiences with money and the unique financial challenges that lesbians face. Now I'm with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Gainbridge sponsors the best, including the Indiana Pacers, Indiana Fever, Indiana 500, and the Queer Money Podcast. That's because Gainbridge believes dedication is an essential component of success in every community. Visit gainbridge.life today. Cool. So welcome, everybody, to the Queer Money Podcast today. This has been an interview a long time in coming, and I'm really super excited about it. We've never, one, I'm kind of scared about it because logistically, we've never hosted so many guests from so many different locations at one time. So that's a little bit causing me some anxiety, but I think it's going to be abated by the fact that I think it's going to be a rock solid conversation because today we're talking about lesbian money. Now, I, I think it's all funny. Oftentimes we get people ridiculing us on social media, but like money isn't different for LGBTQ people than everybody else. And then I, I laugh and I scroll by, but then we all, we're also cognizant that even within the LGBTQ community, money is different for all of us. So we're going to talk about some questions we've gotten from listeners over the years. Well, we're also going to tackle some other topics and get some background and experience from people in the lesbian community about how money is different the challenges that they face and maybe some of the successes that they've had. So welcome everybody to the podcast. We're excited to have you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Awesome. So since we do have so many guests on the show at one time, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to ask each guest to please introduce themselves uh, so that our audio listeners get the, understand the sound of their voice. And so the visual listeners know who exactly is who. So Jenny, would you mind getting us kicked off, please? Sure. Hi, um, I'm Jenny Dissolves. I'm from San Francisco and I'm a financial planner. I work uh, mostly with women and LGBTQ folks, mostly from tech, because that's the career that I came from. And I help folks get the financial confidence so that they can work and live the way they want to. Awesome. Thank you. Hi, I'm Angela Coyville. I'm a licensed psychologist. I live in Gainesville, Florida, and I have my I run a, a mental health practice I'm specifically catered to the queer population, what I call the non-straight population. So anybody outside of sort of that heteronormative cisgender language, I also work with straight people as well. But really the, the focus that I, I have with people is really just around health and wellness and being their best selves. But I love the business side of things. Um, as we were saying before, I love spreadsheets and numbers. So I'm really excited to be here to talk about, you know, sort of the, the back end of life and how to, you know, make the life that we want while, you know, not being inundated with, you know, money and finances and things that I actually find kind of fun. Awesome. Thank you so much. We're excited to have you. And Janelle. 
Hi, I'm Janelle. I am a psychologist by training, a uh, relationship advisor by trade, and I specialize in working with the LGBTQ plus community. I work with youth all the way up to older adults, but I have a special niche that I work with, which are women who were previously with men and often married to them and had children and are now with or would like to be with women and that transition and process of um, both emotional and financial challenge and triumph. So I'm very excited to be here to talk about this and look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, we got a broad breadth of experience and backgrounds. This is going to be a good one. Right. I'll throw in there. I love to know that you mentioned triumph because I think a lot of times we can easily focus on, oh, these are all the struggles we have, but there are so many times that we can celebrate overcoming those struggles. And I think that's something our community especially needs to focus on right now, you know, with what we're dealing with, all these laws that are being pushed out and across the country. Let's talk about how we can overcome because our community has done that very well for such a long time. Exactly. So let's get started with a broad question. From each of your unique backgrounds and experience, how has money maybe been different from for each of you from your own perspective? Uh, why don't we go the opposite direction? Dr. Janelle, do you want to get us kicked off with that? Like from your perspective, how has things been different for you and your family financially because of your LGBTQ status? Sure. You know, so I'm currently married and we have four children that are all adopted and they're adopted through the state. Two of them, my wife adopted with her ex-partner. We adopted our two girls in December. So right away, I think the family dynamic is different. You know, the family planning is financially very different. And we, you know, there's a history there of, of before my place where there was a years of trying to get pregnant that led to the adoption process instead. There is no, you know, there's less of, I guess, a typical breadwinner. We're both full-time working. We both are in the helping profession. My wife's a social worker. So yeah, and we have children that have a lot of individual needs. They come from trauma backgrounds. So we have, we can't, neither of us can have a typical nine to five because we have so many providers and services that we have to be there for our children. So right off the bat, and that's obviously specific to our situation as well, but juggling the finances with the needs of our family is, is sort of always a tricky, you know, kind of a balance for sure. I'm just going to stop. I, I also love that you brought this point up. You know, statistics show that LGBT folks have a higher likelihood of adopting children with special needs than the general population. And you just, the, the fact, simple fact that there's a financial obligation uh, that a lot of parents with kids of special needs have, they're inviting that in. So right there, there's, you know, that can be an easily designate individuals as being different when it comes to their finances. Yeah. Angela, would you mind sharing your experience, please? Sure. That's such a, a broad question. So when I think about it, it's hard for me. So I, I just got married. My wife and I have been together for about six years Been married for oh, coming up on about a month. But yes. our, our family structure, so she brought two kids from a prior relationship that are my, my stepkids, even though we like bonus parent better than step parent. Um, our, my oldest was just like, yeah, step parent doesn't really feel right. So I think for us, one of the unique pieces is one, her previously being, and both of us really a relationship with a, a man in a sort of, you know, straight presenting relationship, but having, you know, these two boys, these teenage boys that we raise half time, also being a mixed race couple, I'm, I'm black, my partner is white, 
And we have these white boys that we're raising. So you put all these pieces together and we have a really sort of fascinating combination when we think about finances, because we're present focused, past and future, always at the same time, thinking about the inherent generational wealth that they're privy to different than myself which impacts my own you know, security around jobs. Like my, my, my wife will say often, like I work three, four five jobs all the time. I was raised in a family of just hustlers in terms of we're working all the time. Everybody owns their own business, side businesses, always working. And that's, I think, connected very much to just the lack of security. Like I'm not going to trust society to take care of me. I'm really going to have to step up and be you know, responsible for taking care of myself. And when I think about our family, that really impacts how we parent, impacts money, impacts for me, just how I was raised, um, not being given a ton, but being really encouraged to work. And, you know, it's really different in a lot of white families sometimes. So even thinking about our wedding that we had just a month ago, I was very much focused on let's stand our budget. Let's see, you know, where, you know, it's like we don't need all the flowers and things like that. So really trying to come together, which I was thinking is really unique with two women. We both very, we're more nesters. We very much like to, you know, focus on things that we like. So, but there's more egalitarian, which is nice. There's no standard roles. So everybody gets to do everything, which also means everybody does everything. So we sometimes will step over each other saying, oh, that's mine. That's mine. That's mine. So it's like overly helpful. I think our, our kids are probably just like, oh, my God, we don't, you know, it's like back off a little bit. We, you know, there's too much care for us. There's too much, you know, attention um, to us, which is really nice. We think it's really nice. But, you know, all these pieces coupled together, it's almost like a, an abundance of resources, but also a scarcity at the same time. Just that sort of innate fear about being women, being a person of color, being a marginalized community. So all those pieces together can be really complicated sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And too much help. Mom, <laughs> you two are smothering me. <laughs> I, can, I can hear right, it. We think, we think it's great. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> awesome. Jenny, would you mind sharing? Yeah, I think a lot of the money stories that we live out as adults come from when we were, you know, whatever we learned as a kid. And for me, I grew up in a, you know, immigrant Asian American family, like conservative Christian family. And I think what I absorbed about money as a kid was like it's security and status, very important. And so that's what I internalized. And that's what I focused on. And then when I came out in my 20s and really kind of you know, had a huge riff with my family and had to leave and kind of recreate my whole life again, that money as a form of security became even more important because I had to figure out how to, you know, kind of feel like I had to stand on my own two feet and lose a lot of that family safety net that I had before. And also, I think whether I consciously was thinking this or not, I think part of me felt like, hey, if I failed at being the ideal Asian daughter, let me at least succeed financially. And that drove a huge part of my identity and how I chose to work and live. And I think I've spent the last, you know, five, 10 years trying to unravel that. And part of my financial journey has been learning to kind of develop the financial confidence for myself so that my wife and I can have that freedom to create the life and work that we want to and kind of get off the conventional path. And that's led us to, you know, do things like work on passion projects around LGBT rights that we care about, take our family around the world and just kind of do something that is, I guess you would call it financially insecure, (laughs) but we were doing this with financial, you know, with kind of the confidence 
And so just that's been my journey of moving away from, you know, staying on the conventional path because it was safe to being able to be brave enough to kind of create the life that we want. Yeah. So I think what, what really stood out to me that what, what you just said there was that if you couldn't be the perfect Asian daughter, that was your inspiration to do better financially. And that sort of reminds me of Andrew Tobias's book of the best little boy in the world, right? Where all these boys are trying to overcompensate in every other category of life because they know that because they're gay, they're, they're being marginalized or being looked down upon. So do you think there's a, an element of that, that, that you and maybe other lesbians deal with as well? So it's not just, it's not just the gay men. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think so, for sure. I mean, for certainly, I just speak for myself, for sure, right? Like, it just kind of rooting myself in that identity that like, okay, even if I can't be this, at least I'm capable, at least I can provide, at least I can be successful in this outward sense and make my parents proud this way, even if I failed in this other way, that for me was a big part of my identity. And frankly, like, it's still something that like, I'm going to therapy and, you know, still, still trying to unravel. I'm still just trying to take, you know, separate my identity from my ability to contribute in that way. Yeah. Angela and Janelle, I'm wondering if you, do you have sort of similar, I guess, drive or motivation, or do you feel like, or have you felt in the past that you're, you've got to excel in other areas of your life to sort of compensate for maybe having been a disappointment in another area of your life? It's interesting on this one. I think for me, what I think about, and I put this in the place of a lot of my clients as well, is that it's often less from the childhood. I'm not who I was supposed to be. I think, I think about the women that are leaving these, you know, structured heteronormative families where, you're, oh, like you failed at this. And it's sort of this like underlying, like you'll never make it without a man. He was taking care of you. He was, what are you going to do with all the things the man did around the house that you don't have a man for anymore? And you're leaving that man to, you know, go be in this other relationship that you don't even know how to do half the things, right? This is this sort of undercurrent. So I think there's a lot of that, like, I'll be fine mentality that pushes the drive to, to be, because a lot of the women I work with too are not immediately in another relationship. So they just are not with that heteronormative world. But so it's more of a drive in a sense, I think can be to prove that like, I don't need anybody, like I can do this and less of a kind of childhood wound in a sense, I guess, or childhood and acceptance. But I do see more, less around the like, I need to be financially successful, but more like I need to be able to take care of myself and my kids and not need that man influence in a sense. Right. I can see that. Angela, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. I think I was really struck by that word compensates because I think, I think for me, it's combined to being a black queer woman. It's sort of, it's, I think in my, my, I work with I work with a lot of black women, a lot of people of color. I think there's a common thread around it doesn't matter how successful I am within Western culture within the United States. It almost seems like it it doesn't matter. There's always this sort of idea that I'm chasing of, you know, if I if I live according to larger standards, I will never be good enough because the standards were not made for people that look like me. So it's it's one of those things. I think one of the things I've been unpacking as an adult, the older I get is to feel myself thinking about what is it that makes me happy? What do I want to move toward? Because I think just the legacy of being black, it's, it's less about the family I grew up in. It's the, the entire black community that I'm always aware of. There's, you know, the phrase I am because we are. So it very much is my success is all of our success. My failure is all of our failure. And so I think it's less of a, a compensating for, I think there's a, a burden and responsibility that I feel oftentimes to be successful, which in some ways is a positive driving force, but it also 
it's tiresome. You know, it can lead to burnouts. And that's part of probably why I'm in the field that I am, that I like sort of working with people as we're all on this journey trying to figure out how do we, you know, get to relax and go on vacation, enjoy without thinking I'm supposed to be working, 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 making money. So it's a hard balance to strike. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community through access to credit, tools to manage debt and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. So I'm curious, what financial challenges do you all see impacting queer women that may not necessarily be impacting the rest of the LGBTQ community? Do you see anything from your experience or even the people that you work with that maybe is slightly different for the queer women that that you are or that you work with relative to to everyone else? Maybe I'll I'll keep it to Angela here. Oh, goodness. Specific to queer women. I thought about this beforehand. I think it's so, it's so fascinating to think about being a, a queer woman. So I think about being a queer woman versus being a, a queer man. And I did my um, undergrad in sociology. So it's really hard not to think about just our social structures. And I know a lot of straight white men that are very nurturing, kind, great parents, really engaged with their kids. There's something about being a woman in parenting roles and part, partnering roles that I was conditioned to possibly, you know, there's some innate pieces of being sensitive to power, sensitive to privilege in a way that if I was walking around in different skin with a different sexuality, different gender would feel somewhat different. And I think for me, I feel like we, we just got back from the vacation. Um, we were down in Mexico and because of my, my short hair and how I look, I am misgendered all the time. So I don't often walk around with the assumption that I am a woman. I often, I use she, they pronouns. I don't identify as a non-binary person, but the number of times that I heard sir in Mexico. And when I sit and think about it, with that came some privilege. There was an assumption that I had the money in my pocket. I, they were talking to me instead of my wife. And that also puts me in a role of leading at the same time. So when I think about, you know, some of the social structures different for queer women, there's a sort of a relaxedness but also my wife doesn't like that. She also likes to be partnered and likes to be engaged and wants to be a part of. So I think there's a, an ability to step back as a queer woman, but also at the same time as a queer woman partner with another queer woman, it's like, who's in charge if we have that patriarchal, you know, structure. And, you know, it's like people can just look past both of us sometimes. It's just, oh, it's just two women here. So I think there's, you know, some of those nuances around just that kind of, cis normativity, heteronormativity that impacts how the world sees us, which I don't feel very different, but I think when I'm out in the world with other people, it can feel really different. It's like, are people seeing my queerness, my gayness, my gender? I don't really know, but something feels off. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Janelle, your thoughts? Yeah, I love this question. I mean, I think about this in so many different ways, and I think privilege is such an important part of this. And I think about my own personal experience, my first marriage where we were both very 
traditionally feminine, both long brown hair. People thought we were sisters 90% of the time. We were asked, I always think of this as a small example, but every time we were ever anywhere, we were always asked if we wanted to split the bill. Right. So like nobody ever assumed that we were together and we would just like be paying. Right. And I know that's a small little thing, but financially, you know, if I was ever even if I was with a male friend, it was always like almost assumed that that was either my husband and that he'd be paying. And I think that that's uh, really interesting. I, I love the point you made, Angela, that, you know, while the same is true for when you have two men together, there's no clear who's the one in charge. But it's also like somebody's clearly in charge, whereas with two women, it's like maybe nobody's in charge. You know, it's this interesting dynamic. But I also think the other piece of that that I think about with a lot of the women I work with is that they've been living a really traditional lifestyle. And they're often very feminine presenting for at least a period of time. They've been living a straight life with a husband. And so that privilege of being appearing to be anyway, like a you know straight cis femme is different. It's just a different place to be than when you're known to be in a same-sex marriage. And I I can't even tell you the amount of times that like, I'm still like, oh, people see my hand and they're like, how's your husband? My car was decorated for years, for like the whole year. We got, we got married last March and I, my car still said just married until like December when it now says just adopted. But people were like, your husband's a lucky man. And I was like, my wife sure is. You know, and so it's just one of those, the assumption that comes with that piece that I I think does play a role in the financial aspect because it just sort of is the way you're placed in the world. And, and then I, you know, of course, I think the piece about what coming out of how, whatever role you had in your cisgendered marriage, essentially, that your financial view has to be different when you leave that whether you're single or whether you're now in a same-sex relationship for any period of time, there's just a different focus. It takes a while, I think, to adjust to that from where you had been, where either surprisingly, a lot of the women I work with were actually completely the ones paying all the bills and financially responsible. They just might've not been the one making all the money. So they were responsible for where it went, but maybe husband was off doing that while they were also doing all the caretaking. That happened more times than I can count in my clients' lives. And you know, I came from a 11-year relationship with a man before I had met with my um, ex-wife. And the sa- I was very raised to be like, everything's even. We didn't have children. So I was like 50-50 down the line always. So I kind of pushed that, but that was my background and it was not the norm. So I think that that's more common in two female relationships than it is in a heterosexual. And not it's hard to compare to two males because I've never been a part of that one. But, but that's what I'd add on that. You said so much there that I, I want to unpack. One is I, th- I think it is pretty common that women in straight relationships often manage the money. They might not necessarily be the, the primary breadwinner, but they often manage the money. That must be super challenging then to break off into a get divorce and then go into a, a lesbian relationship and then transfer those responsibilities over. Now who's going to now who's going to manage the money? Now who's going to you know do all these things that I used to do? Are we are we dividing these things together or am I still going to take ownership of this and you're going to be finally liberated of this responsibility or that must be a really challenging transition and I would imagine that would there could be sort of this opportunity for a lot of mistakes to happen because it's not being ma- the money's not being managed the way it, it should be, right? Well, and I think that that's exactly right, that there is this definite, like we, at least I know, and this is with clients too, but my wife and I always talk about this, like we both did everything in our previous relationships in many ways. And so when we came together, it's like, well, we can't both still do everything because there's, there, we don't, there's not enough things that we both need to do all of them all the time. But there is, what I do find a lot of times is that there's a lot less combining of finances for at the beginning of 
lesbian relationships because of that independence that's been there, that that feeling of like, oh, this is mine and this is mine. <laughs> like there's this, like I have mine and you have yours. I mean, we, we pay for everything together, but we still today do not have a joint checking account. Like it's a very just, and there's a million reasons why or why not, especially today with Venmo and Zelle and all that, like it's less, I think, necessary for sharing of funds. But there is something about like, I actually, and it can be an issue, like we don't really know what each other are spending day to day because we can't see it. And that was true for my last relationship as well. Like we'd never had a joint checking account for the seven years we were together and even married. So it is interesting that that can be a difficult transition, clearly. Yeah. I'm going to jump in and ask a question, Janelle, and and all of you can answer this, but I see this in the personal finance space, especially from women that there is a kind of guard yourself. Don't be 100% trustful with the man in your life because you need to be able to take care of yourself, right? And I'm, I'm curious if that kind of messaging may prevent and sometimes couples actually combining their finances in a way that there is a positive outcome. Have you seen that or is there some fear. I don't want to combine my finances just because I've heard of all these these bad stories. Because of course, we hear all the bad stories, but nobody ever tells us how great their finances are because they've combined them because that's just plain and simple, right? I mean, it's, it's just that's the way people, everybody assumes things happen. But when, they, when we hear the bad stories, that it's because that's what we seem to focus on. So I'm curious if you think that there's something happening there because of that kind of messaging. I definitely want to hear Jenny, your input on this as a financial uh, advisor there. But what I think because of the women I often work with are coming out of very oftentimes, not always, thankfully, but some tumultuous divorce situations in which the reality is a marriage is a legal and financial relationship, right? So you can be with someone for years and years and years and legally and financially, you never have to be joint. Once you're married, that that is the case. And so the financial stress and strain that comes out of a divorce can be enough to sort of be like, I will hoard all my things and I will let no one touch them. And even if it's like the most loving, accepting, sharing, generous fam- uh, relationship with two females, that fear can really prevail. And I think I, we see that a lot and it, and it can actually lead to, you know, feelings of not being trusted in a really negative way into this relationship, because it's like, I'm not the one who's given you reason to be afraid that you're going to, I'm going to take all your money. Right. But, you know, I can even speak to this, like the end of my marriage was a hundred percent a, the reason it was challenging was the finances. And it was because of, you know, that was used as the bait at the end when things were no longer as amicable as they were at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard because you don't get married because of money, but you certainly are getting divorced without being a number one player. But I, yeah, I agree. I think the fear does play a huge role in the combination for, especially these women that have come out of a place where they've had divorce be such a financial stress. Absolutely. So yeah, I think I'd love to hear your thoughts, Jenny, on that. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know if it's like a woman thing versus a man thing or whether it's just more like at what stage of life the couples are in and whether they've been in previous relationships and they're coming in. The couples I've worked with, I, I guess, I mean, I didn't plan it this way, but for the most part, like they have been, you know, if if they haven't combined, it's because maybe they got together later in life. If they have combined, it's because they got together earlier in life, right? Maybe they didn't have to go through a tumultuous divorce. And so hopefully they won't have to, right? So it'll be all right. It's interesting. I mean, kind of rewinding a little bit what you're talking about, just like the transition of roles in your financial roles when you get together with the woman, maybe from previous relationships. 
I think certainly it can be a challenge, but actually I just, from a personal standpoint, like I've actually also found it kind of fun because when you go into relationship with a woman um, in a same sex marriage, whether it's man, man, or woman, woman, you kind of can make up the rules, right. And you can get away from the heteronormative stuff. So there are things that I am better either. Like I just enjoy more versus my wife. And we don't have to like say, Oh, well you should do these things. Cause these are the male things. And I, you know I mean? Like, so we kind of pick and choose and that's been really fun to do. The one thing that I have noticed when working with women is sometimes like the things that I think some of the challenges that women face financially period are, are more exacerbated when you're talking about two women together. And so one example of this is around investing. So just in general, very broad strokes wise, like women invest a lot less than men. We feel less confident about it. We hoard a lot more cash. I think in probably, and you, the two psychologists can tell you, maybe we're more security oriented. So we're just more concerned about losing it. Um, there's all kinds of stats that talk about that. And I think also just societally, like when women get together, we don't necessarily just talk about investing. That's not something we just talk about. Um, but that is what men talk about, you know, when they hang out with their friends and stuff. So I think there's just less education. It's just, it's not part of something we think about a lot. So when you have two women come, what I've just noticed is like, there's just less education or interest, or they might come in with feelings like if I invest, that's capitalistic, that's bad, you know? So that's kind of the stuff that I see maybe just anecdotally a little bit more common when I'm working with lesbians versus with straight couples or with gay men. Gotcha. So women don't like to talk about investing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends. Depends. Well, yeah, you know, I, I will say yeah, this. You know, this is kind of the legacy thing, right? I mean, for literally centuries, it's been men in charge of investing, and men who have done the investing, and men who have been portrayed in advertising in investing. And anytime there is a woman, it's it's a woman sitting next to her husband talking the the two men or, you know, you were just so tired of this kind of portrayal. And I'm so glad that, you know, as over the last several decades, we have seen much more financial services firms open up to having this conversation and understanding the transfer of wealth that is happening and that is being created by women today is changing the financial service industry. They need to, you know, there's the, there's still a couple of, I see advertisements regularly from a couple of firms and I have to shake my head and say, what decade, what century are you living in? Because this is not the world that we live in today. And I think it speaks to the, you maybe have alluded to this, the kind of heteronormative things that we step into. Yesterday, I was on the phone speaking to an insurance agent and they asked me if I was married. And I said, yes. And then they said, what is your wife's name? I said, well, it's my husband. And But I, I'm, I'm sure for women in same-sex relationships, going into get a loan or talk about insurance, and you get that all the time. Where's your husband at? Or And that has to have a psychological as well as possibly a financial impact because you don't want to put yourself in those kinds of situations. And it can be, this is, yeah, I just don't want to deal with it. I'm not going to do that. So uh, do you think, think that that's happening? Yeah. I mean, I mean, just like, I think a lot of it too, is just first starting with like, as women changing our attitude towards money, right. Instead of seeing it as like either this necessary evil or this capitalist, a terrible thing, but really seeing it as like a fuel that we can use to support our families, to support our communities, support the things that we care about. And when I like, just as a financial planner, when I'm talking to these women about investing from that point of view, they get a lot more excited, you know? And then if you add on top of that, 
you know, there's also this whole rise of impact investing and being able to put your investments to work, not only to, you know, reach your own financial goals, but also to support causes that you care about, then women get a lot more excited, you know? So I think it's like starting with just changing, realizing that like, money is great. Money is good. Money allows us to do things, you know, and allows us to be able to amplify whatever things that we care about in this world. And I think that will hopefully the financial services industry, like they, that's how they're starting to talk about things to women. Cause that's, I think what we care about when it comes to money. Heard a rumor about annuities, cut out the noise by visiting queer money podcast sponsor Gainbridge at gainbridge.life to learn more. Yeah, I think that's super important. I love how you, you you package that. You know, you you want to reframe what money can do for you. I guess I'm curious from your experience with the people that you work with, why do you think women sort of have that the women that you work with anyway have that sort of negative connotation about money? I mean, I could just speak from like my wife anecdotally, you know, like I think again, it kind of goes back to some of these money beliefs that we maybe grew up with. For her, she's told, you know, what she's told me is like, she always felt like if you're doing good, then you should not be earning lots of money. You know, like that's kind of what she learned growing up. Mm -hmm. And I do think that, I don't know if women absorb this more, but like, I do think I have seen lots of lesbians come in with, maybe they don't admit it exactly like this, but it's like, if you want to be a good person, you really should not be making that much money, you know? So I think there's this, I don't know, I, I, I'm going to leave it to Janelle and Angela to maybe <laughs> to chime in from, from where that stems from. But I've definitely seen that show up in kind of the money beliefs of, of women that I work with. Yeah. I'd love to know, Janelle and, and Angela, do you experience that in your own lives or have you worked with, with clients or, or students that have that sort of have that, that inherent negative connotation about money? We'll start with Angela. Yeah. As, as, you know, as soon as you said that, I'm aware. So I'm, so I'm a psychologist. I'm a practicing clinician and it's fascinating. So I also, I teach young counselors in the graduate program. And there's this idea that I I was trained in and thankfully have learned beyond that to provide mental health, you have to be aware of all of the trauma that people experience, lack of resources, and we don't value our field. So the idea of someone paying for services, we don't talk about money within mental health. The program doesn't talk about it. It's the idea of you provide service, you care for people and you provide service and the money just sort of, you know, it's going to, it's just happens behind the scenes, right? It's like people use their insurance and things like that. But the reality is, so I live in Florida and our insurance reimbursement rates are some of the lowest in the country and and for mental health it's just not prioritized and for me building my practice so i have a what's called a, a cash pay practice i don't take insurance i don't spend time on the phone with insurance companies and i can make more money but i also can provide more service because the hours it takes to pursue claims and uh, get on insurance boards and things like that. And the money that is received doesn't equate to an actual living. And this isn't communicated to students oftentimes because our field is flipping. It's majority women. It, you know, it's founded by white cisgender white men, and it's mostly women, women of color, queer individuals. And we're just, we're not taught to talk about money, to have people pay for our services. Oh, you can't pay. That's fine. So we end up not making as much money. And I talk with my students a lot about, you know, what we do, like we change people's lives. It's very different than a, you know, you break a bone, you go to the doctor. Working with people over, Jenny, what you're talking about, it's it's trauma, right? It's like you end a relationship, that's trauma. You go through a divorce, that's trauma. Being queer, lesbian, gay is traumatic. 
the stress of being a marginalized person is trauma. And to be able to create a space for somebody to be their best selves, to be here on this podcast, right? To move through all the things that we've had to move through, to think that that has no value is unbelievable to me, right? But yet within the social sciences, we're taught you provide care, you provide services, and the, the money is not what it's about. So I think we do a really big disservice by not talking about money within our field. And I make a really big point, a clinician that I've um, hired, who's a, you know, an intern working toward hours about, you can make a living in this field. You can make a really good living, not, you know, trying to bait and switch or just, you know, make a whole lot of money from people for not providing a service, but really do, doing a good job and letting people know that what we do has value. Being socially conscious has value. So it's, it's more about the, the value instead of the money, right? If it's, if I think about like that face of the financial planner that you all talk about, you know, we can assume like that icky car salesman, right? Versus somebody who cares, is really compassionate and that there's an, you know, an added value to that. I just think we're viewing it all wrong. Yeah. A hundred percent. I love everything that you just said. I think it's been profound. One of the things that David and I have been trying to encourage more LGBTQ people is to get into financial planning. A good financial planner is not the car salesman just trying to sell you the hottest stock. A good financial planner is, is doing a bunch of therapy. They're doing money coaching. They're doing some counseling and they're trying to really dive deep into what matters to you and what you're trying to achieve, what your anxieties are, and how can you address that? And then ultimately figure out a financial plan that sort of that, that captures all that and helps you, your family, whatever, live your best lives. And I think there are so many industries that do sort of try to say money isn't a priority. You don't need to worry about the money. Just go ahead and teach, be broke, but teach, pay for your kids, your students' crowns and their books, just teach. And it's like, well, I, I don't understand. Like, why do certain industries have to struggle to make ends meet when there are other industries where they just can't ever make too much money? That's kind of where the, the conspiracy theorist in me kind of thinks, Somebody kind of set this up a long time ago <laughs> so that the rest of us kind of choose to live in poverty in a way so that we're living, being good people while other people get to live in abundance. So you said a lot of great things there. I'm wondering, Janelle, from your experience, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I can echo so much of what you just said, Angela, as obviously our, you know, our fields are, are similar and I chose to not be licensed partially because of the, I don't deal with insurance. I'm also a fee for service. And I, you know, went a non-traditional route in many ways. So that's why I'm also not licensed. But when I was doing that, you know, I went through a lot of entrepreneurial training and coaching and so much is like, it's okay to ask for money for your services, right? And I mean, I went from the extreme that was like, you should be charging an exorbitant amount. And I was like, my clients literally are going through divorces and losing children. Like they can't afford that to also being like, but your time is valuable and you need to, you know, be able to do that. And, and I still, I mean, I am, I lowered my prices during COVID at one point because I knew people were struggling and I wanted them to get the help. I felt that that was appropriate, but I've raised them again. I still have really low rates comparatively. It's a struggle to figure out what is the balance because I understand the position of the people that I work with. And I'm like, if it's too high, they won't get the service. They just won't. And I'm like, well, I'd rather them have what they need to some degree. You know, I don't do it to a degree where like, I'm now like, you know, impoverished and like living on the street. But I mean, I certainly could be doing better in that way too. And, and I do think there's absolutely so much for women around like money is icky. And that like, if you're striving for it, you're, you're dirty. Like you're, you're not doing it right. You're, you're not like it's, and it's been that way, you know, generationally forever. 
not only is it like we were supposed to not know about it, but if you do, then there's something like, you know, sinful about you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I see that so much with women in business and that fear of like, if I'm trying to make more than I'm, and I, and I even see it. I mean, in, there are women who are doing really successful solo entrepreneurship and there's that little, like, I don't know about them. There's probably something off with them. And it's like, why, you know, but we have that feeling. And I think, especially what you were saying, Angela, in the, in the service providing where we're providing help, that there is the, like the help matters more than the the money, but the help is the value, you know, and we can't, I can't give help endlessly without getting something to live on, or I have to not only burn out emotionally, but I mean, I literally just can't do the work anymore. And, you know, I think about between being a part-time professor at a local university and then, you know, being a self-employed practitioner, it's like, we are the reason that the humans that are the next generation will like keep the world running. And yet, you know, we make nothing essentially. And, and part of that's our own fault. But I do think that that is such a big part of it. And, you know, I do struggle with that. It's like, oh, I don't want to really ask for more. Like that's, that's too much. But at the same time, like I'm paying my couples therapist like $250 an hour. So I'm like, why am I not charging that? You know, and it's, it's a very, and she's a woman, but she's a lot older. And I'm like, well, she must have different, I mean, who knows what it is, but we tell ourselves these stories about it a lot. I think when it comes to what we're entitled to versus what looks like we're being like grimy or something, I don't know what the right word is there. So I think you're entitled to everything that you want. So how do we change from your experience? How do you think we change that perception in in the whole community, not just with lesbians or queer women, in the whole community? How do you think we change that perception? Janelle, I'll keep it with you. You know, when you just said that, the first thing that I could think of was like, I want to hear from more women that we know are doing good talking about yes. what they're making, right? Yes. Like, I know that sounds, we don't talk about like, like sharing your salary. Yeah. Like literally sharing salaries, sharing what they charge, how they worked up from that, you know, from like, everybody knows like how much Steve Jobs is, ma- you know, was making, but we don't know how, how much I can't think of a name right now. You know, even Oprah, like we know she's worth millions, but like how much was she being paid or asking for service when she was starting out? You know, I think we just don't hear enough from women that we, we believe are doing good, what they actually make. Cause the women that I know are successful right now and are doing some really powerful work. I have no idea what they actually get paid for their services. And I think that would really help us as women in, you know, trying to build careers say like, oh, I can ask for that. I, I deserve that. Because I think without the reference point, we're like, I still sometimes would be like, well, maybe that's too much, but I don't know. I mean, it's probably not at all, but we just don't have the comparison. I think that's so true, John. I think we have to talk about money more, not make it such a kind of, again, an icky thing to talk about, but not only sharing our salaries, but even just how we think about money in general, kind of, again, going back to the thing that I, I do think, again, I'm not a man, so I'm not sure for sure, but I think for men, it's probably more common to talk about this. We recently ran kind of like a money circle where we just grabbed a bunch of women and we had lunch and we talked about money and we kind of created a safe place to talk about it. And everyone shared everything from, you know, getting advice on how to negotiate a job offer to how do I deal with the fact that I feel really bad about my husband not making enough money, you know, like, or whatever it was in that case. Right. So just like even our emotions about it, I think just being able to talk to our, talk to each other and just make it more open so we can help each other, whether it's the emotional stuff, whether it's salary negotiating or how to invest, like just make money less scary and icky. It's, you know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. We think about it in our heads all the time. We just don't talk about it. Right. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Angela, did yeah. you want to add anything to that? Well, it's it's fascinating because I was aware. So I had my first my first professional conversation about money and salary negotiation when I was 31 years old. 
So it hadn't, you know, as I was a kid, you know, my dad would talk about money, but you know, when, when you're 14, you know, it just kind of went over my head, you know, but it wasn't until, and I, I received that talk from a black woman, which mattered because for me as a person of color, wasn't completely out at the time, but just the idea of I can speak up, I can ask for money, I can take up space. For me, I think I've been seeing a lot more about just salary transparency becoming sort of that the new really positive thing coming out of COVID because nobody seems to want to work. People are really struggling to get their jobs filled because people are tired. People are realizing there's a really more relaxed way of, you know, living life. I don't have to get to the office at 8 a.m. every day. You know, telework has really changed the game for work. But I think for me, I've become really clear with just clinicians that I hire being really transparent about money. Because on that, that's something that I can do internally about. So every client that comes in, this is how much I make. This is how much you make. This is how much, you know, we pay for operating expenses, which is why you make what you make. I make what I make. If you do this, you get paid this. I, I don't think we talk about all the, the numbers a lot, as you both were saying. And I think we can change that simply by what we start doing right where we are. And if everybody did that, then... You know, I said, what, there's one of, what is that study of, you know, it's like, I don't living next door to somebody and, you know, if they make what a certain amount more than I do, there's a certain level where it just doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. right. I think the discrepancy isn't that big, but we notice what people buy, which is what really throws us off. Like, oh my gosh, they must be making so much more than me, but really people are not. Like I'm really gravitating toward people and financial planners that really just say how much they make because it helps me know, oh, I'm actually doing pretty okay. You're just a bad money manager because you know you, you have all of these things, which tells me, oh, you have a lot of money. It's like, no, you have no money in the bank. You just have a lot of things. Yeah. So I think we're really missing. Yeah. We're really missing the point by not talking about dollars and cents. A hundred percent. It kind of reminds me of Paul Donovan's the credit illusion, you know, how we can be standing right next to somebody and they've got the, the bag and the shoes and the watch and the, all the things, right. They get out of the car and we look at them and like, they must be making so much more money than me, but they also have a credit card with $25,000 on it. And they've got a car payment of $900 a month, right? They may not earn any more money than you. It just appears that way. I think there's one thing that we can kind of throw in the mix here as this idea of deservedness. I think that there are a lot of, lot of folks in the queer community, especially but I think maybe this may be something for, for women as well. And I love your thoughts on this, this whole idea of deserve, do I deserve it? And we, and we oftentimes, the way that we determine whether we deserve it or not is we compare ourselves to somebody who doesn't have it or has less than us. And then we're like, well, I guess I don't deserve it because they don't have it. And it kind of reminds me of this whole idea of radical self-care right? Taking care of yourself first. Well, I think we need to overlay that onto our finances as well. Radical personal finances means I need to take care of my personal finances and make sure I'm taking care of myself. My life is sustainable before I can start giving to others. And sometimes the giving to others is by, we say, okay, well, I don't deserve it. 
because that's the way I can give to them is by not being better than or having more than or making more than them. Yeah, you can't you can't give unless your unless your cup is running over, right? Otherwise, you're just depleting yourself. And David and I say this oftentimes that we see so many in the community who are so focused on giving that they hurt themselves in the end, and then net net they're not really helping the community; they're just transferring the pain around. So yeah, I would love to know your thoughts on what, what David just said. We'll start with Jenny. Don't start with me. Start start with Angela. <laughs> okay, well, Angela. I can, well, I can say you know it's. I think that you just named probably 80% of the clients in my practice. When I think about that struggle, because I, I work with a lot of women, a lot of queer, non-binary, marginalized populations, the idea of caring for themselves is selfish. The idea of caring for themselves is, you know, taking away from somebody else. And that, that's the history of not being given a lot. So anything more then basic needs is too much because basic needs for, you know, somebody who was kicked out of their house when they came out was enough, right? Shelter, safety, you know, that, that idea of taking care of myself to a point where I can, you know, it's like, don't pour from an empty cup sort of thing. People are, so many people I work with are so excited to just even have a cup. So I think it's, it's really difficult because I probably struggle with that myself, that idea of, you know, having my PhD, you know, I feel is it's a privilege. I, my parents paid for me to go to college, which is a privilege. I don't feel entitled to that because I know as a black woman from a black family, you know, the assumption is that, you know, I went to school on a sports scholarship. I know all the assumptions that people make um, about me. So for me, there's so much privilege that I have as a black queer person. So I probably also struggle with radical self-care and working too many hours, working too many jobs, because I started out with more than people like me. Mm-hmm. So I work with a lot of individuals who struggle with the same thing. So when they, you know, those that graduated from college have even those that become really, really successful I had a conversation this week with one of my clients just doing really, really well and really struggling to take care of herself because I never thought I'd make it this far. I never thought I would have this position. I never thought this was possible. I don't want to lose it. So I think it's just, it's a real struggle when you feel like it's an unbalanced game and you're winning in some respect to think, well, I'm supposed to now just take care of myself. What about all the people that helped me get here? What about all the people that still, you know, need to progress and, you know, thrive and grow? I can be helpful now. To follow up with that, I'm wondering, do you think for some in the community that discomfort has become the homeostasis and that when they aren't discomforted, that that is another level of discomfort? So they try to avoid that? Do you think maybe even like on a vibration? You were in my session yesterday, I think. (laughs) I think you were in my session yesterday because that's exactly it. That's what we talk about clinically, that idea of that experience of there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. I'm happy. I'm content. For me, it's so uncomfortable. It's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? There's no fire to put out. What do you mean? There's, you know, nothing to budget. There's nothing to to fix. There's no, what do you mean? I can just, you know, I just, I just got back from an all-inclusive resort. And I think it wasn't until maybe like day five where I could sit on out on the balcony and be like, 
oh, I can get used to this. I can, I can, right? But it's 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 not that automatic thing. It's, you know, it's days of, all right, what are we going to do? You know, I'm up at 7.30 because, you know, that's what just my body does. I'm sleeping in because I usually get up at six. So it just, it takes a while to turn that off and get comfortable with comfort and ease when that isn't the norm. So it is, it's uncomfortable to be comfortable. So it's yeah. easy to think, oh, that's wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could totally see that. Janelle, your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, this one's so interesting. I mean, this this goes so much deeper than finances. I think obviously we talk about women culture, but I, I, you know, I look at, I have women that are clear that they are either gay, lesbian, in love with a woman, whatever you want to call it, and are like, I shouldn't leave my marriage. I shouldn't do it. Like it's financially going to wreck my family. It's going, it's not right. I'm being selfish that it comes up more times than I could possibly tell you about women that are like, it's selfish of me to leave and live my truth and to stay and live this life that was like scripted for me. Right. And I find that to be just like both enraging and so sad (laughs) because to me, I mean, that, that isn't taking care of your family when you're, you're, you're the model for your children. And that comes from everything from emotionally to financially. And you teach your kids what is the best way to approach things. And if you stay because it's the right thing to do or because of finances only, or, you know, and and I don't mean finances as in security, but it's like the picture, right? It's the finances of, we have this nuclear house, the picket fence, the dog, the, you know, three-car garage. And so if we get divorced, that won't be there anymore. So we can't do that. And, you know, that deserving piece plays in so much there. And to realize like that isn't the only part of financial success, right? Right? There's a lot like being able to take care of yourself, being able to even just learn the skills to budget, to plan, to invest and save and actually have something later on. You know, you can do that as a single person. You can do that as a woman in a you know same sex relationship. And we don't have to stay in the sort of the box that was written for us a million centuries ago, it feels like. And I, I absolutely think that that is is so, so deep seated in women in this culture from and, you know, add all the other intersectionalities beyond just being a woman. And it just continues to get harder and harder to find that worth that it's just pure. And so I, I, you know, I think we see that so much with finances. I think the number one challenge obviously is that we're not talking about it and we're not, we don't know enough. You know, I, I was just talking to a woman whose daughter was being homeschooled and she took what was known as consumer math. And I thought, that sounds phenomenal. And it was all about how to budget, how to do your taxes, how, to, and I was like, oh, well, I was taking square dance in middle school. Her daughter was learning how to file her taxes. And I can't even fathom how we don't learn these skills at a young age. I mean, we start, I started working as a babysitter probably. And then as I was working in a bakery when I was 14. And I had a W-2 at 14. I still, it's like the questions of around like, how you know, my taxes are much more complicated these days, but we should have those skills and men do and women don't. And I think, and not that we, we can't get them, but I mean, it's not offered as readily. So I think that taps into, I don't know enough about it. It's a little bit scary because I don't know about it. So like, I'm just going to not go near that. And I'm not really deserving of figuring it out anyway, because that's not really my wheelhouse. And then we just perpetuate this unfortunate cultural cycle. And here we are talking about it. <laughs> more information out there. <laughs> Absolutely. You can say something. No. Jenny, did you want to add to that? Yeah. Well, actually, it's something Angela said. I was like, my gosh, I've heard this a lot from clients. You said that sometimes what you've heard is people say, I never believed I could have gotten here. And now I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. And I hear that a lot. 
both from queer women and queer men, you know, like they just never, and I think it's partly the deservedness. And then what it creates is this vague financial fear that stews in their head for perhaps years. And then eventually they they end up talking to me or some other financial planner about it. And the solution to that, I think, is in part, you know, like as Janelle was saying, just getting the skill set or getting help, getting professional help, whether that's a planner or a financial coach or something to get help to, to look at the numbers and to, because actually a lot of times, by going through it and just looking at it, they're actually in a much better position than they realize, right? Or that, or there are perhaps insurance or ways to protect against their worst case scenario. So actually there's, there are practical ways to address their fears. That's part of it. And that's part of the work that I do with clients. But the other part of the work that I do with clients is also just helping them develop the confidence that yes, like no matter what amazing plan you have, you cannot protect against everything. There's no such thing as financial certainty. So, so where you need to have is like the confidence in yourself that whatever happens in your life, like you will have the resources to cope and to manage and to figure shit out, you know? So I think that's part of it too. But yeah, I do think that that deservedness can sometimes lead to the financial anxiety, but it's all very, I think it's solvable, you know, like it's solvable through skill set and it's solvable through, through, through mindset change. 100%. 100%. I love that. I, don't, I can't tell you how much I'm loving this discussion right now. And it's only seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> we're, not, we're not usually moving out and about this early. <laughs> I do definitely want to cover uh, one of the questions that we got from a listener a long time ago. And uh, Janelle, I'll, I'll toss this to you. But can you speak to the possible solutions for lesbians who are leaving traditional relationships with a man and are now partnered with another woman and the additional expenses that they may be incurring in that transition? We'll start with Janelle and then we'll let everybody else chime in as well, of course. And actually, maybe since the majority of our listeners are gay men or queer men, maybe you can maybe lay out some of the expenses that we wouldn't necessarily be familiar with if we are in going from one relationship to another and there are children involved. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, so I think one of the challenges right off the bat is you have this feeling of you want to create a home in two places, right? So one of you is not often like, I'll just go get a one bedroom apartment, right? You can't really do that when there's children involved. So there's that feeling and that desire to still create a comfort for your children. So now you're kind of like, not maybe the same size home, but you're trying to create in a sense, two homes that are fully kind of like stocked with all the things you need for your family. And, you know, I mean, divorce proceedings alone and all of the legal, the legal parts are an expense, right? Everybody knows that whether you doesn't matter what you're coming out of, that's an expense. But the piece that often like can take so much longer is that figuring out of the childcare piece is the separating who's getting what amount of custody, how that affects what amount of salary we're splitting them between the couple. And then if you've been in a relationship where you're not paying for childcare because one of the parents is available and now you have to go back to work, there is a childcare piece that needs to come in there too. So we often see that you have to pay for after school, you have to pay for a nanny or something that comes into play that wasn't there before. And that's, again, that can be a huge deterrent for people to even separate because of those, those pieces. You know, there's certainly just starting from like a lower reserve a lot of times, you know, if a lot of women that I've worked with had been stay-at-home parents. And so while in the separation, yes, they are entitled to uh, some amount of the future, right? Like 50-50 of the income going forward. 
they didn't have some large amount of savings to fall back on. And yes, there might've been together something, but it's different in that they haven't been working and they haven't been part of that culture. And so now they have to go get a job, figure out how to do that, manage the time, you know, whether it's before school, after school, all of those pieces, and then also still continue to provide like you know, emotional support and all of those things for your children. Um, also, a lot of times children and adults are in need of th- therapy and mental health services as you're going through a divorce and going through these major changes you know, extracurriculars, all of that. It just, it's all of these pieces add up and you are so focused on wanting your kids to be okay. So sometimes also the self-care piece can be left in the dust at times, which is, you know, not necessarily a financial burden, but can lead to financial burden because if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not paying attention to your financial health. And I, you know, I think it's, there's so much to do about savings for children. Like there's 529 plans and all of those pieces to agree upon with your separation that I think it's, I recommend every single client I have that's going through a separation to go to a financial planner. I think it's equally, I'm like, if you're talking to me, you should be talking to them because it's just not, it's too complicated with kids to not get professional support on it as well. Yeah. Do you know, are there financial planners who specialize in people divorcing? I would assume so. Yes, there definitely are. Yes, yeah. definitely. Gotcha. Cool. Thank you. That was a great explanation. And I haven't thought about some of those expenses. And Angela, did you want to share anything? Well, it's it's funny because I my this was a very very much been a lived experience that we've had, and I think the age of the kids is one of the things that people don't think about when I think about the age that our kids were when my partners separated from her ex, you know, being in, you know, nine and 11 versus being teenagers now. And, you know, the things that you mentioned, emotional labor has value. And I think that's the one thing that not a lot of women really get. And I know a lot of men do not. For whatever reason, there's just emotional labor. That's that, that work that oftentimes, like, I think both my, my wife and I did more of in our prior relationships, you know, that idea of, you know, being aware of vacations, trips, camps, and planning for that financially, right? It's January. And that's when summer camp registration shows up, right? And, you know, trying to think about that because summer camp for a lot of parents is, that's what, you know, that, that summer, you know, time is for them to be able to work. Right. So if you used to be in a quote unquote traditional, you know, heterosexual relationship, man worked, wife stayed at home, you didn't think about that after school. But if both people are working, if you're a lesbian woman, a queer woman who's now working with summer coming up, you know, thinking about, you know, after school and the geographic location of even parents to the school. So one parent isn't left being childcare because they live closer. You know, if you get that second home. So it's like, there are all these resources and kids eat a lot, you know, <laughs> especially if you have boys. So it's just like all of the, the things that go into it, if it's, you know, even if it's sort of this perfect separation and perfect divorce, right? The resources that kids need. So, you know, thinking about your kids, thinking about yourself and where all that labor comes in. Mental health is, you know, that was a great one that I don't think a lot of parents think about having resources for mental health, super important. Yeah, a lot of things creep up and, you know, they're not, they're not your kids until they're 18. So that idea of, you know, continuing to support after, you know, high school when, you know, the divorce papers are no longer, you know, after 18, some of the legality of the separation written down shifts. 
So it's like emotionally being prepared for, oh, I want to send, you know, my college kid money. I don't. And there's no paper that dictates that, you know, coming home for breaks for summer and winter break and things like that. You know, which home, you know, the kids going to choose to stay at, how are the parents going to negotiate that. There's a lot of pieces that just aren't explained really well when you're sitting at a divorce table with lawyers, you know, some of that emotional piece. So probably being really, really thoughtful and, the you know, having a lawyer that gets some of those pieces kind of beyond the numbers. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. What I'm hearing here a little bit of is is for women who are in this situation, who have recently gone through a divorce from a man and now are entering into a relationship with a woman where they're both bringing kids. sounds like they need to pony up and get an attorney, a therapist, and a financial planner who will talk. They can be comfortable. And this is probably the biggest thing being comfortable to talk openly about these are the things that we are work, working through as a family. How can you support me in finding solutions that work for us in making our lives as normal as possible through this shifting circumstances? Yeah. And I, you know, I, one thing I just want to add to that briefly, because you mentioned it and it's such an important point, which is that emotional labor emotional or invisible labor, which is all of the, you know, the pre-thought around like, you got to schedule doctor's appointments. You got to be aware that that needs to go to this school. I mean, I said, I have for, I've been dealing with blended family life since 2012. And so I've always been the person that's like at every Monday, we need to email the teachers and tell them where the kids are going on what days. And every Friday, you know, there's, there's so much logistic that no one's paying you to do this, right. To keep this all moving. And so I always encourage women that are the stay-at-home parent that may be transitioning into a same-sex relationship where that's changing, or it's just they're going through the divorce, is to like calculate that work. Because when you go through this divorce process, like that is not for nothing. And just because you're not receiving a salary for it, that life does not happen without that work being done. And to really encourage women to give value to the work that they do behind the scenes. And, you know, as you had said, Jenny, earlier, you know, I'm grateful that today in my marriage, we just look at each other and say, what are you good at? What am I good at? and we just divide and conquer. And so it's not role divided or anything like that, but that's still how my personal brain works better. Like I am the forethought planner organizer. So it's really easy for me to shoot off a bunch of emails, put on my to-do list, cross it off. Like that's not my wife's strength. So she'll do other things, you know? And I think though, but that all matters and it all keeps it all working. So you have to have that division, you know, and and give yourself that credit for it, especially if you're going to go through a divorce where you haven't been receiving your typical salary, because then it looks like, like, oh, I haven't been working. I have no value, which is just not the case, obviously. Absolutely. So I guess what I'm taking away from most of this conversation is that one of the biggest challenges, and I think that a lot of communities can experience this, but one of the biggest challenges for queer women is trying to navigate a financial world or a world in general that wasn't necessarily designed for them, or at least designed for their independence, independence from a man. But then also it sounds like trying to figure out how to navigate that. One of the things that we can do better as a community or that the personal finance community or financial services in general maybe needs to start doing is having better conversations that's more inclusive of the unique challenges, fears, circumstances that women, queer women have to navigate. Is that in sort of summary, would those sort of be from your perspective, your experiences, your your lives, as well as the people that you work with, that maybe th- those are the two 
challenges and maybe those are some areas that those of us who have any influence need to start focusing. Maybe I'll start with Jenny. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Like, you know, when I was, before I became a financial planner myself, I had hired financial planners. They were all white guys because that's all I found. They weren't bad people, they were fine. But, you know, it's a very, very intimate thing when you engage with, when you start talking about money, you know, and, you know, the kinds of questions I'm asking people are like, you know, what would you change about your life if you thought you were going to die in 10 years? Or, you know, how do you want your partner taken care of if, if you died, right? These are very intimate things that you're sharing. And I think the more representation you can see in financial, both professionals and also just regular people talking about money, the better there is. Because again, like money weaves through everything. We're all thinking about it. We're just probably not talking about it. And it's been really cool to start doing this as a professional myself and to be able to engage in these conversations um, with people. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. Angela, your thoughts on that? Yeah. I love that you all use the word unique because I think that's something that I'm hoping people start to grasp that it's, you know, use the word divorce the uniqueness of, you know, separating from a heterosexual relationship into, you know, a queer relationship. We can talk about money and understanding blended families, queer families, you know, there's, they're very unique challenges and not the same. So putting the same template on top of that really does a disservice and kind of hides some pieces that doesn't allow the, the couple to really consider. So I think, yeah, really like, podcast like this, like this has been fantastic just to kind of talk more in depth around the unique challenges. I think oftentimes with my wife and I, it can feel really invisible trying to explain to people just how complicated this is because it can be really complicated and difficult and not having community for that makes it that much harder. So yeah, having financial planners that look like us, that have lives like us, you know, that's how you know that they understand some of the nuances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know how many times John and I have said that we would love it if there was a trans person who was had a money podcast that was covering issues for trans individuals. If there was a lesbian who had, was doing the same thing, we, there are other queer people in the personal finance space, but they don't seem to talk much about the unique circumstances that we all face or the kind of the, the siloed experiences that we we face within the community. So for those of you who are listening, <laughs> we will definitely support you in wanting to do that, uh, create a podcast like that cuz we always say we, you know, we are two cis gay white guys and we can only talk about lived experiences from our own circumstance and invite other folks onto the podcast to share their lived experiences as well and I think it's important for there to be consistency, you know, it'd be great for those kind of consistent voices to be heard over and over and over again in the community. Yeah, hundred percent. So I know we only, we barely even scratched the surface and we didn't even tackle all the questions that we had. We did cover all the questions that we've gotten from folks over the years. So hopefully our, those listeners will appreciate that. But I think we maybe need to have you all come back again. Maybe we do another panel. Maybe we have you each come back separately, but I think that this is until there is a, a trans money podcast and lesbian money podcast and non-binary money podcast, <laughs> the queer money podcast will maybe have to step up and try to do more of these kinds of conversations. So we want to thank you all for your time. This has been super helpful uh, and super informative for David and me for sure. And I'm sure our listeners, 
Before we bounce, though, I want to give you all an, an opportunity to share your platforms and what you're working, products and services that you're working on, and um, how our listeners might be able to connect with you if there's uh, if anything that you said resonated with them. So we'll start from right to left. Janelle, do you want to share anything before we wrap up? Sure. You know, I can always be reached at drjanelle.com. That's where my work is with my, um, you know, to contact for my client work. But I also have a community and a podcast under Big Change of Heart. So if you happen to be one of those women that is either currently with your husband and leaving or like to leave and are either in love with or want to be with a woman, we are the space for you. There's also a live show. So bigchangeofheart.com. You can find all of it there and the podcast as well. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Angela. Sure. So I don't do a ton of social media. I aspire to, but I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Angela Koivula. You can always email me, drangelacoivula.com. My practice is affirmative counseling and psychological services. So just affirmative counseling psych for anybody that just wants to see mental health, what I do. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Jenny. Yeah. You can find me at modernfamilyfinance.com. Yeah, if you are looking, you know, if you want some help on your financial planning side, because you are trying to get more confidence to be able to create the life you want to live, that's what I do. Awesome. Thanks so much. And I can't remember the episode numbers, but the listeners might know that Jenny has been on our podcast before with her wife, Lisa, and we had Dr. Janelle on our podcast in the first or second year so. We'll have the production team add those to the show notes for us. So thank you all so much for your time. This has been super informative and we'll definitely have to have you all back. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks guys. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Angela, Jenny, and Janelle, thank you so much for participating in this amazing money panel. Hearing your insights and your stories was truly valuable. We only scratched the surface of unique lesbian money issues. So we're going to have to have you all back to dive a little bit deeper. <laughs> right. And to our Queer Money listeners, thank you again for listening to another episode of the podcast. Here's your Queer Money takeaway from this episode. It's been a Queer Money takeaway in the past, and it probably will be again in the future. Please start talking about money. Start sharing your salary. Start talking about saving and investing. Join investment clubs and money circles. Have the dialogue with your friends, your family, your spouse. Let's talk about money more. This is the first step we all can take to start equalizing the playing field when it comes to money. Thank you for listening to the episode and we'll talk with you next week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.